Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Avi Havivi's weekly Sidur class. I said we would take a break for a week or two and talk about the additional Ma'ariv prayers before we go on to the Amidah. Sorry, the, did I say traditional or additional? Additional. Additional, yeah. said. Uh, Hashki Venu and the long blessing after it. I'm not sure we'll get all the way through today. Um, to give you a little background, though, about things that are different about Mariv, what's the major thing that's different about Mariv liturgically? Marshall, unmute, unmute Marshall. Uh, there's no uh, uh, there's no recitation of the Amida allowed. There's no rep- right recitation or repetition, repetition, which means then, of course, also no kedusha, since that's only part of the communal recitation. So the background to that probably is um, there's debate in Mishnah and Talmud as to whether the evening service is obligatory, like the morning and afternoon service, or um, optional, which may surprise some of you because. Some of you, many of you are probably raised like Jews, daven three times a day, period, end of story. Muslims do it five times a day. Jews do it three times a day. That's how we do it. But in fact, um, in the Mishnah, in the Tanaitic sources, there's debate about whether the evening service is obligatory or optional. And service means the Amidah, okay, um, which is seen to be the core of any service. And this debate continues even in the Talmud, where Abaye says, I think it's Abaye says it's optional, and Rava says it's mandatory. And then the medieval sources, the medieval halachic sources, say, well, it's technically optional, but because all of Israel has universally accepted this as a universal binding custom, it's obligatory, but not obligatory, but because that history is not obligatory at the same level as Shachrit and Mincha. Now, why would this be? Um, that it might be optional, that some sages might consider it optional. Uh, any thoughts why? I'm guessing there may not have been evening sacrifices, if you view the prayer as replacing Cor- sacrifice. Correct, and yes and no. So um, the Talmud has a debate about why do we daven three times a day? Why do we have the Amida three times a day? It's not really a debate, but what reasons are there? Um, what are the two reasons that are given? So one has to do with sacrifices. Anyone remember what the other one is? We daven three times a day to commemorate the three. What's three? It's an echad miodea question. What is three? The ancestors, the male ancestors, right? So Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. And there's a there's a a Gothic tradition that Avraham invented shachrit, and uh, Yitzchak invented mincha, and Yaakov invented mariv. And there's a little textual reason for each one in pray sheet, some verse that means that's taken to mean they prayed. So there are two reasons that are given for why do we pray three times a day? Alan, please mute again. Um, One reason that's given is it's about the three ancestors. Another reason that's given is it's to commemorate, commemorate the sacrifices, which are no longer in existence. So the challenge with that second answer is there are only two obligatory sacrifices a day. If you remember from, you know, Vayikra, Leviticus, I guess, the daily sacrifice is a morning and a late afternoon, a little sheep that gave up its life, okay? 
that had its life taken morning and late afternoon. So the communal, everyday, mandatory, sacrificial worship in the temple um, on behalf of all Israel, which we talked about last week, um, was twice a day, not three times a day. So the explanation that's given in the Talmud is, well, but at night they would burn some of the inner body parts that were removed from the sacrifices and they would burn all night the sacrifices from the day. There were other sacrifices that people brought, you know, vow offerings and Thanksgiving offerings. And there would be certain parts, the fat and other parts that would be offered on the altar and the people might eat the rest of it. I had a professor in college who referred to this as the sacred barbecue or the holy barbecue. So certain parts were offered, the rest was eaten by the people or various other customs as to who ate them. Um, But those extra, extra body parts that were sacrificed on the altar could be burnt all night long, all right? So the Talmud ends up saying, well, the third uh, prayer commemorates the other burnings, other sacrifices that went out went all night long. Now, the, there's a problem with that, which is those other burnings aren't really obligatory either, because what if it was a day theoretically in the temple when there were no Thanksgiving sacrifices brought by individuals, there were no Nazarite offerings brought, there were no um, vow offerings brought. Maybe there wouldn't be any additional body parts that would be burnt on the altar during the course of the night. Theoretically, there could have been a slow day at the Beit HaMikdash when there was only the morning sacrifice and the afternoon sacrifice, right? So we're left with, um, by the way, the Mishnah says, for the morning for the morning Shema, you say two blessings before and one blessing after. For the evening Shema, you say two blessings before and two blessings after. So the Mishnah accepts that there is an evening Shema that is binding and universal, but there's debate about the Amidah. Remember, originally the Shema and the Amidah were probably not connected. There probably wasn't a service, okay, like a service the way we have it. They were probably done separately. So a res- so there are a few residual effects of the debate about whether or not Mariv is obligatory. One residual or residue of that is that we don't repeat the Amidah. So remember, why do we? Re- why why is there a repetition of the Amidah at all? There's a repetition of the Amidah so that people who did not know how to say the Amidah, because people were unlettered and didn't have and or didn't have printed books, because no one had books or manuscripts, and you know, if you were a simple tradesman, you probably didn't know all 19 blessings by heart. So the purpose of the repetition of the Amidah was that so those who didn't know the Amidah correctly could listen to it, say Amen to each blessing, and that is how they would fulfill their requirement to say the Amidah. Since the question of whether or not there actually is a requirement is iffy, a residue of that halakhically is there's no repetition at night. That's why there's no repetition at night, probably. Okay. Another residue is the long prayer that Larry wants to complain about after Hashki Venu. Okay. And um, when we, we'll talk about it more when we get to it, but there are those who say this prayer was said either 
in lieu of the Amida, if for people who did not believe that the Amida was obligatory, or for people who didn't say the Amida together communally because Mariv was said a little bit early before it was totally dark out because people wanted to rush home to be home before dark for reasons that we'll talk about when we read the Hashki Venu in a couple of minutes, okay? Um, they might have said the Amida at home, and so they said Baruch Hashem Le'olam Amen V'Amen, that whole long prayer, instead of the Amida. That's how they finished up communally together. Then they dashed home, and they said the Amida when there were three stars out, right? They didn't wait and hang together until there were three stars out because it, there, it, it was scary and you wanted to get home before dark. So we have a couple of different residues of that the Amidah is different than Shachri in its obligatoriness. It has a different level of obligatoriness. Everyone with me on that? By the way, um, we talked about this a little bit when we talked about other Min Hakim. So does that mean that you, if, if you consider yourself to be a halachic Jew, um, does that mean that you could consider Mariv optional for yourself? Could you say, well, in the Mishnah, Rabban Gamliel says it's obligatory, and Rabbi Yehoshua says it's optional, so I'm going to follow Rabbi Yehoshua. Um, so the answer to that is the way the traditional halachic system has worked until relatively recently, the answer would be no, because once something, even if it's a minhag, becomes universal, then it is seen to have de facto the force of obligatory. Or once their halachic positions that the majority of Israel ruled against hundreds and hundreds of years ago, you can't pull it out of the waste bin. So you can't say the, the way the traditional halachic system works, you're not supposed to say, I'm going to light my Hanukkah candles going down from eight to one because I follow Beit Shammai. Or I'm going to eat chicken with dairy because I follow that position in the Talmud. Okay. So the way the traditional, which is a discussion I had with someone uh, who's smiling, which is, um, uh, so the way the traditional halachic system worked is even though there were things that were under dispute a long, long time ago, once it's decided, it's decided. And you can't go back and say, well, I hold according to the opinion of this rabbi from 2000 years ago, even though no one's done it that way for the last 1800 years. It's not how halacha works, not how law works. The other one is um, ending Shabbat 42 minutes after candlelighting, which is the earliest possible time in halacha, right? Um, I quoted a modern Orthodox rabbi on this some months ago. I'll say it again. He said, why would you go back and adopt a position that no living Jewish community practices? Why would you pull something out of the waste bin that has essentially been discarded? It's like saying, I go according to saw some law from 1850 that was nullified by Congress, right? You can't, legal system doesn't work that way. You can't do that, right? Individual can't say, I don't care what the system did. I don't care that the system has rules. I'm gonna go according to the law from 1850, right? Um, I do know, by the way, my wife told me about a friend of hers who um, actually lights two Hanukkah candles. He lights 
a Beit, the Beit Hillel way, the normal, normal way, counting up. And he lights also a Beit Shammai way, counting down. And it is his personal statement of uh, this, is, this is like symbolic of we ought to preserve pluralism. Elu ve'elu divrei Elohim chayim, as we say, these and those, both these and those are the words of the living God, right? So that's his personal practice. Now, um, I do want to say as halacha has evolved, so there are rabbinic responses in the conservative movement where they will retrieve a custom that was not accepted. So we don't have a tshuva yet on chicken and dairy I don't think that's likely to happen, but we do have rabbinic response in the conservative movement on other things that were kind of voted out and saying, well, you know, we have a, if it makes sense to do it this way because of various modern conditions, you know, we've got a precedent for it in the tradition. We're not making it up anew. Okay. But so far they haven't said, and Mariv is optional. Okay. So, if you consider yourself to be an observant Jew who follows the traditional Jewish law, you don't say Mariv is optional. You say Mariv was considered optional, you know, as recently as uh, Rava was uh, 1,600, 1,700 years ago, but um, that ship has sailed, okay? And it is mandatory. But I'm bringing all this up because we have residues of this earlier practice by virtue of, for example, no repetition of the Amidah, right? Because you don't have technically the same level of obligation to say the Amidah as you do for Shachrit and Mincha. That's why there's no repetition of the Amidah, okay? Because you don't really have the obligation. So if you didn't know how to say it, we don't really need the Chazan to recite it aloud for you to recite Amen to fulfill your obligation because you don't really have that same level of obligation as you do for the morning and afternoon service. Everyone follow that convoluted reasoning? Okay, so now let's jump into Hashkivenu. Before that, do we, we have time for a quick story about, about chicken and milk? Sure. True story. A friend of sure. mine who was of, of a Sephardic descent was arguing with a, a Chabad rabbi over and over. He just didn't understand why chicken should be considered meat since it doesn't have milk, doesn't feed its young milk and so forth. And finally, the rabbi... By the way, that's why Rabbi Yossi Haglili thought, in Tanaitic times, thought because it's about, do not see the kid in its covers, mother's milk, which means a mammal quadruped that gives milk. If the laws of separating milkic and flachic are based on that, that would seem to be a logical inference. Go on, Michael. With so, he, so he kept pestering this, this Chabad yes. rabbi about it. And finally, the rabbi threw his hands up and he says, okay, so for you, chicken is parv. <laughs> Got it. Which, which he should not have said. Right. No, I, but, right. So anyway, right. Because the halachic answer is that's a minority opinion <laughs> from Tanaitic times 1900 years ago. And it was not accepted by the Talmud as the conclusion Period, end of story. That door is closed. Again, in terms of how traditional halacha works. Okay. Uh, Avi? And I, I just want to say, I want to make clear, I am not a posek. I am not a rabbinic decisor. So I'm not saying what you should do or shouldn't do. I'm just telling you, like, uh, to, to try and do my best to communicate to you the rules of how the system works. Yes, Alan? Yeah. Didn't Rashi also claim that chicken should be parv? I don't know the answer to that, I'd be skeptical. 
Yeah, I, I heard that from someone, and I, I... I'd be skeptical. Okay. Okay, thank you. Because I think that door closed, like, by the year, you know, 400. Okay, but, you know, one could look into that. Um, okay, Hashkivenu, page 140 in the Slim, uh, 296. Hashkivenu Hashem Shalom, cause us to, or help us lie down, cause us to lie down, Hashem, peacefully, and then stand us up again, O our King, to peace, meaning go to sleep peacefully and then wake up peacefully. So we talked about um, uh, most of these prayers, blessings around the Shema, seem to have a theme word which recurs, which tells us what the theme is. So what seems to be the theme word of Hashkivena? We've already seen it three Peace. times. Shalom, Shalom, peace, wholeness, safety, security. Shalom connotes all those things. <laughs> Guide us with your good counsel. Save us. And protect us. And remove from us. And now we have a whole list of things. Enemies. Disease. Uh, Sword, which means violence, uh, starvation, suffering, and um, I will just leave this as is instead of softening it. Remove Satan from either in front of us or behind us, which means uh, remove. We just had the Super Bowl. Remove means like blockers. Okay, block Satan from being either in front of us or behind us, um, which, of course, our translation is uncomfortable with, so it says evil forces. Okay, that's the translation of Satan. Um, and, and I don't think that's a mistranslation. I think that's a, you know, sidestep translation, which is not illegitimate. Okay, so remove demonic forces from around us. Um, hide us, shelter us in, under the shadow of your wings, literally. Why, why is it reasonable for us to ask God to do all these things? Because you are Shomer and Matzil. You are a protector and savior. Modern Israeli matzil is the word for a lifeguard, by the way, at the pool mm-hmm. or the beach, right? So you are a God, you are our protector and our saver or savior, okay? So why am I requesting all of these things of you at this moment? I'm not saying because you are the creator God or because you are the God who loves us and chose us and gave us the Torah, Right but because you, are, we are appealing to God's aspect as protector. By the way, that can be one reason why Hashkivenu is added after the previous blessing of Ga'al Yisrael as opposed to somewhere else. And some of the sages in the Talmud say, but what about the fact that you're not supposed to interrupt between the blessing Ga'al Yisrael and the Amidah? And we have this other blessing as an interruption. The answer is that the answer that's given in the Talmud is that Hashkivenu is just a can can be seen as a continuation of the theme of Ga'al Yisrael. Because remember, the theme of Ga'al Yisrael is God as 
protector, savior, and redeemer. So some sources say in the Talmud, well, this is just a continuation of that um, same idea. It's called, by the way, Geula Arichta. The blessing is a long redemption blessing, okay, by adding the second blessing after it. Jeff, you had a question? Question, comment? Yes. Um, the word Satan, I don't recall hearing that very often in any of our tefillot. Good. We'll come back to that. We'll come back to it. Thank you. Um, so, ki el melech chanun vrachumata. So you're our protector and savior. You are our merciful and compassionate sovereign. Ushmor. Uh, so therefore, I'm closing with a request. Again, shmor tzeitenu vo'enu l'chaimu shalom me'atav olam protect our goings and our comings. In English, we would say our comings and our goings. Um, protect it for life and wholeness or peace now and forever. Baruch Hashem, Shomer Amo Yisrael La'ad. You who protect your nation Israel forever, eternally. And we know, of course, this last part is changed as some other chatimot or ending of blessings are changed for Shabbat. When we, what do we add when we're talking about Shabbat in this blessing? We add Jerusalem, right? Right. So we, we add more of a national element. Okay. Hold on, Larry. Okay. So basically, this bracha is about protection. Now, why is this blessing added at night? This is not a, you know, you don't have to be like a Einstein brain surgeon to answer this question. It's not a deep mystery, right? Why is it added at night? Nighttime is? We're going to sleep. It's a scary time. Well, uh, before we go to sleep, it's a scary time. Why is it a scary time? We have to get back home. Because it's only in the last, you know, 100 plus years that people had illumination at night. And prior to that, nighttime, universally, nighttime is scary time. What, What does nighttime have? It has bad guys. It has wild animals. Okay, so people rush to get home after dark, by dark. And what did they have to illuminate their night? They had like a little lamp at home, right? And because you need to have that little lamp at home to illuminate your evening and you're not allowed to light fire on Shabbat, that's why you had the Shabbat candles, so that people had light, right? They had a little lamp so that they could eat dinner at nighttime, people would light a lamp at nighttime, but it was like lamps, little lamps in the house. There was no external illumination, right? Nighttime was scary time. And Jeff, nighttime is also the time of day when demons and evil spirits are abroad. So Judaism, medieval Judaism believed quite abundantly in evil spirits being abroad, um, spirits that try to kill babies in their sleep, and sometimes succeed. Um, uh, female spirits that copulate with men during the night, and that's why men have nocturnal emissions sometimes. So there are all kinds of beliefs in uh, evil spirits, and they had more power during the night. Now, this may strike us as not particularly Jewish, but it's actually really Jewish. Um, if we don't believe in that, then we're the ones who are not particularly Jewish, okay? Mm-hmm. And that's because we're modern people and we're secular people and we say, ah, so we don't believe in, you know, ghosts and spirits and stuff like that. But, you know, medieval Midrash has plenty of stories of, of 
the Satan. And the Satan goes back to the prophet Zechariah, who wrote in about the year 500-ish, and the book of Job, um, and it's also mentioned in the book of Chronicles. So late in biblical times, Satan as a personification of evil sources, a, sorry, a, I want to say divine, or I guess it is divine, a, a, what am I trying to say? Supernatural, thank you. I don't want to say divine. As a supernatural manifestation. So the Satan, which literally means the adversary, okay? The adversary as a supernatural manifestation of evil forces who roams the earth and converses with God, um, saying, this, by, this guy is bad, right? That makes its appearance in late biblical times, not early biblical times, late biblical times. And then, you know, the Talmud and the Midrash, they go to town on this. So Jews totally believed in evil spirits. There's no question about it. If we don't, we're the one, we're the aberration. So praying that uh, God protect us from the Satan, that's not the aberration. If we don't believe that literally anymore, we're the aberration. We're the ones who change beliefs because we're modern. Um, and, and then it strikes us as like, oh, this is so weird, which is why our translator translates it as evil forces, which makes it nice and modern. ambiguous. Yeah. Okay. But literally, uh, but, but concretely, the evil forces that the author is talking about is talking about supernatural demonic forces, which are roaming around at night. <clears throat> Elon is very, keep, keeps having a puzzled look. Go ahead, Ilana. You unmute. You have to unmute or we'll be puzzled as to what you want to say. No, I just did. There we go. Um, this is just one. Um, okay. So, so sort of a counter example uh, and a question. Um, Early biblical, like you know, um, Tanaic, Tanachic, is that a word? Yeah, um, <laughs> biblical, um, say biblical. Yes, um, uh, there seems to me a lot of examples where one could have described various events as manifestations of the evil spirit being active in people's decisions, right? So, okay. for you know, for example, I mean, really obvious examples like in the, you know, the Garden of Eden and, you know, all kinds of examples of what, you know, this sort of protagonists and yeah. eventually the Jews do. And what about Pharaoh? But none of that stuff seems to be explained with that framework. Okay. At least not, not overtly. Not, not uh, Correct. Not overtly, which means those authors of those texts or author didn't want to talk yeah. about that, right? But if you'd look in the Talmud and the Zohar, it says Satan got in the snake and okay. Satan okay. did this to mess up human life, okay? okay. Um, and by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm doing some Zohar uh, and it's very, uh, it's upsetting to me. Because we, we always say like, oh, Judaism doesn't believe in original sin and that woman's sin brought death into the world. And that's a Christian idea. Um, and uh, the Zohar says that very clearly over and over and over again, that Satan getting into the Satan and uh, Satan getting into the snake and luring Chava Eve caused her to sin. 
and woman brought death into the world, period. The Zohar says that over and over again. So someone's a Zohar scholar and wants to argue with me. I'm happy to hear that argument, but that's what it looks like to me. And I keep reading and I'm saying like, oh, here it is. It's this sort of kind of Christian, kind of misogynistic view. And, and yes, it's there, right? So this thing about like, no, 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 we don't believe in that. All of that sort of thing is like, all of that is selective memory, which is to say, we say that the authoritative texts and the holy texts are the ones that agree with what we think and feel and believe. And those other ones like that's an aberration. No, we don't believe in the Satan. That's, that's like an aberration. But, but that also, that also um, contradicts the whole idea, I guess it's maybe a modern idea, of people having a choice. Right. People making their own being she responsible. Had, she had, she had a choice. She had a choice and Adam had a choice and they made the wrong choice, but they were, but they made the wrong choice. Ha- part of how that happened was they uh, were lured by the devil. Satan is the so, devil. Satan. So, is so even when God says um, to the whole people, I put before you a blessing and a curse. Right. Choice means you can screw up. That's what mm-hmm. choice means. Right. Choice doesn't mean, you know, you'll do the right thing. Choice means you could do the right thing or you could do the wrong thing. Okay, so I don't want to dwell on this too much. I just want to say, like, that's why it's here, because, you know, pre-modern Jews believed in malevolent, supernatural forces that cause illness, that cause nocturnal ejaculations, that cause babies to die, that cause all kinds of things. Okay, Mike, then Joanna, and then I think we're going to try, I'm going to try to wrap up. I had thought, uh, based on- No, Larry, Larry, and then Candace, we won't wrap up. Then Marshall, okay, <laughs> we'll, we'll see what we can do. Everyone, had, everyone, please speak leanly. Keep it, keep it short. Mike. I had thought that Satan, at least in, the, in, in our modern usage, referred only to the, the prosecutor who would, uh, on Yom Kippur, plead against us before God in the, in the heavenly court, when God was making a decision as to how our lives would be for the next year. Right. And so in rabbinic sources, that prosecutor is Satan. He's the angel. He is the supernatural being who tries to mess things up for people because he wishes us ill. Yes. Joanna. Sorry. And one of his jobs is that, prosecutor on Rosh Hashanah job, but he's got, a, he does other things, Joanna. Way, I'm not saying anyone should believe this. I'm just telling you, this is part of the Jewish treasure hood of beliefs. It doesn't mean that we necessarily believe it. I'm not, I'm not trying to persuade you. I, I, I am. I'm trying to persuade you that it's there. I'm not trying to persuade you that you should believe it literally. I don't believe it literally. Joanna. Picking up on the high holiday theme from Mike, um, we have all kinds of like beautiful reasons as to why we blow shofar, but isn't one of the core original reasons that we blow shofar that we are attempting to scare away Satan? Right. The same way we Chinese people make firecrackers on Chinese New Year's to scare away evil spirits. The same way, by the way, the original root of the folk custom of why we break a glass at a wedding to scare away evil spirits because evil spirits always come and try to mess things up for us. Sorry. Go on, Joanna. And then the other thing I was going to say is I have a problem with the expression bli ayin hara because I feel like 
every time we say that, what we're saying is like, keep Satan far. Like, am I expressing belief that Satan could come and harm me every correct, time I say that? Correct. The, right. Leon Hara means without the evil eye when you say, or two, two, two. Correct. Yes. Right. So you have trouble saying that. And yet we uh, often say that, by the way, this is not widely known in the conservative movement. Uh, it's like nails across a chalkboard whenever I see it, but I grew up in a pretty traditional conservative shul, the universal Minhag is for Aaliyahs, you don't call two brothers back to back, right? You don't call two brothers back to back. Why? It tempts the evil eye, right? It's like, oh, look at my wonderful sons up there. That tempts the evil eye. What is the evil eye? What is the evil eye? It's malevolent supernatural forces. Okay. Candace. Hi, Candace. You're um, new. Welcome. Yes. Where Thank are you. you? Where are you? Illinois. Illinois. Okay. We like people uh, from all over. Okay, okay. go ahead. Um, th- now, is the evil forces, are they just forces, or do you believe that Satan is actual an actual being? Or- they believed in the Middle Ages that Satan was an actual being. They believed in the Middle Our ancestors believed that Satan was an actual being, right? Your basic shtetl Jew in 1850 believed that Satan was an actual being. He was a bad angel. He was an angel gone bad. Pretty much, by the way, where did Christianity get this, you know, fallen angels who rebelled against God? They got it from Judaism. It's in Judaism, right? It's in the Midrash. It's not in the Bible, okay? But it's in the Midrash. It's in the Midrashic tradition. And we're talking about the rabbinic era that goes back 1500 to 2000 years ago that there were, Angels who rebelled against God, okay? And God cast them down as punishment. So that is not, that is not, not a Jewish idea, okay? Doesn't mean we modern people believe it, okay? Any more than modern secular influenced Christians may believe in Satan either. That's something we would probably have in common. We'd probably say, ah, people's ways of explaining, you know, we have better explanations for illness and crib death and other things. We, we don't believe in malevolent supernatural forces anymore. But I just want to point out, it is it's part of the tradition. Okay, Larry, Marshall. Larry will wait. Okay. Marshall. Okay. Uh, Avi, uh, I'm not knowing if you're going to be continuing with this prayer next, next week. Yes, I'm going to wait. I'm going to continue. So if you have anything to say that's not about Satan... Please hold it for next week. I'll hold it then for next week. Thank you. We're going to continue next week. So next week we'll come back and we'll pull together the ideas behind this prayer and why is it here and why is it now? The Satan conversation was a, an interesting and unplanned digression. Um, but uh, that's what that that's there. So again, this just is, is just a reminder that, you know, you can't say, I, I don't want to say you can't say, because there's certain things you can say. But in general, these questions about like, does Judaism believe in the afterlife? What does the afterlife look like? You know, are there angels? Uh, Is there a devil? So all these answers, all these questions have multiple answers. It's who, it depends, who do you ask from what era, when, right? So when the psalmist says, the dead do not praise the Lord, I guess that's the author of that psalm does not believe that there is an afterlife, okay? Because when you're dead, you don't praise the Lord. I guess that means when you're dead, you're nowhere, right? But 
most of Judaism does believe in an afterlife. And then there are modern people who say, well, no, I don't believe in an afterlife, right? So I'm Jewish and I don't believe in an afterlife. That's what some people say. So about any of these issues, is there an afterlife? What does it look like? Is there heaven and hell? Uh, Is there Satan, et cetera, et cetera? You know, what does Judaism believe has a long convoluted answer with many parts to it? Because that's saying, when when you're asking that question, what you're saying is, what do a collection of authors and thinkers over a period of over 3,000 years say? To which the answer is, they say a lot of different things, depending on who they were and when they lived and what their belief structure was. And we always say we're not the Catholic Church. We don't have a pope. So we don't have a system that says, this is what you must believe. And if you do not believe it, you're out. Now, we know there are various attempts to say this is what you must believe, like Maimonides, you know, 13 articles of faith. Um, but the reason there were such attempts is because uh, there was a perception that the, our storehouse of text is so vast and multifaceted that there are many, many things that a Jew could believe and still be Jewish. And then every now and then, someone actually got excommunicated for belief like Spinoza, but that didn't happen all that often, okay? Okay, we have gone far afield from Hashki Venu. Uh, have a good Chodesh, and God willing, I'll see you next Tuesday in the month of Adar. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.